All right. So Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, will be our text today. And we'll get through chapter 53 as well. We arrive at a very famous portion of Scripture. It speaks of God's righteous servant, the Messiah. Did you get that door said? Sorry. Appreciate it. God was speaking to people who were desperate for hope, for salvation, people who were in bondage. They were being oppressed. It was to a nation torn apart by war. They were cut off from communication with, and fellowship with God. They were unable to offer sacrifices at the temple. And God said, I'm going to make a way to have your sins forgiven. I'm going to make a way for you to have life. God would meet their needs. And this passage that we'll be reading today, it's the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when he was leaving Jerusalem with that scroll of Isaiah in Acts 8. 32 through 35. So Philip comes alongside and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone helps me? He invites him into the chariot. And in Acts 8.32, it says, the place in the scripture where which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch asked, answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So God help me, that is what I hope to do today, to preach scripture, to preach Christ, God's righteous servant. And God was speaking of the Messiah that he would send, the one that would be the sacrifice, the one who would atone and be the propitiation for his people's sins. And if you need a savior today, Jesus is the only one. He's the only place where you can find salvation and forgiveness and new life. If you're someone who is torn apart, if you're like that nation who was in bondage, oppressed, afraid about the future, hungry, thirsty, know that Jesus, in him, you will find satisfaction for your soul. You'll find rest. He stands willing and able to save you today. And even if you say, I am born again, I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, well, his power can extend over all areas of your life. You don't have to be defeated anywhere because we have him as our advocate. So let's praise and thank him. Lord, we thank you that you've sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world and that you've given us your word, that you have made it clear through the Spirit what you're saying to the church. And I pray each one of us, Lord, would receive from your hand that we would admit our hunger, our thirst, our guilt, our cares, our fears, and we would commit them all to you, trusting you, and allowing you to save us. So I pray, Lord, that we would experience your rest and peace today and that you'd teach us something new from a passage we may know well. And may we know you better through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. 
so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. God's bondservant, his willing slave, would be exalted above all. The nations were astonished at what happened to the Jews, how they were made, laid waste, they were made desolate. This was a people whose God was feared and known among the nations, and yet they were brought down very low. They were ripped apart by war. It says, just as many were astonished at you because of the desolation of Jerusalem, the destruction of Samaria, so his visage was marred more than any man. People were also amazed when God brought the children of Israel back from their captivity. It was unheard of that a nation should be displaced, scattered, and then brought back as one nation. And God did that. It was a miraculous and completely unexpected salvation and restoration that only God's people could have seen coming because he told them. And then God would do the unthinkable. He would send his own son to become a servant and a sacrifice for sin. So all could be reconciled to him. I mean, that is pretty, I guess, out of the square, as we might say, but that's not even putting it big enough. The existence of the Jewish people today, it's proof of God's care in uniting them. And God, the fact that there are Christians in the world shows that God is able to redeem and restore from lives that were totally ruined and without hope that God would transform a person into having new life and a future. Someone once dead in sins could be made alive. God brought that nation back from the death. He would raise Jesus to new life, and we too can have that new life through faith in him. Have you ever run into an old friend and you didn't recognize them? Because of the passage of time, maybe there had been uh, you know, a little extra kilos over the years or maybe a lot less kilos where you were just like whoa what has happened you look so different when I went back to the states after about five years there were many kids that were in my youth group when they were like 12 13 and they were 17 18 and I had no idea I was like I know that I I kind that's that person like I couldn't even remember their names I had to ask what's your name again um now, verse 14, it says the visage or the face of the Messiah would be marred. In the case of Christ, he was beaten up. He was bruised. He was scourged. He was punched. That crown of thorns was pressed into his scalp. His beard was pulled out. This is strongly implied in Isaiah 56. It says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. A person who had seen Jesus previously preaching by the waterside, who had held babies in his arms to bless them. They had seen his face smiling before. And now when he faced the cross, they couldn't recognize him. They were shocked it was him. They're like, hey, that's Jesus, that prophet from Nazareth. What? Really? They could hardly tell it was him because of the blood and just the, the gore. It was a shock. He was not recognizable. And it was through the shedding of his blood that he would sprinkle many nations. Now, under the Mosaic law, sprinkling was associated with purification and 
sanctification. So setting apart or cleansing. That's what sprinkling was. And you would take the anointing oil, that would be sprinkled. The blood would be sprinkled. In fact, in Exodus 24, 8, it says that when God established the covenant, the people, the congregation was sprinkled with blood. Now that would be interesting, right? If I took some hyssop, dipped it in blood, and kind of, you know, you would, you would definitely go to the back or, or just leave. You would never come back to the church again. But it says in Exodus 24, 8, And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you, according to all these words. So he said, The blood's on you. You've made a covenant with God. You're agreeing to this. He's made promises to you, and you're responding with promises to him. I'll be your God, and you be my people. And they said, Amen. Now, the blood of Christ, it says, has sprinkled many nations. So not just one group of people, not just one generation of people, but many nations for all time, that all who repent and trust in Christ can be washed clean, enter into the new covenant in his blood that he established when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. God had been speaking of this Messiah ever since the garden, since the fall, where his heel would be bruised, but he would crush Satan's head, the serpent's head. And though God's people had been given these words of prophecy, it was like they didn't believe them. They had an idea of what the Messiah would be, and Jesus came from an unlikely source, and he came in an unexpected way. And so the prophet is asking, who has believed our report? Is anyone listening? Because I'm going to send you this Messiah who is going to save you. He's going to wash you of your sins. Anyone listening out there is the idea. He did not come from a notable or a rich family, Jesus, but he seemed to be, in appearance, the illegitimate son of a carpenter. That's what he looked like. He came from a place in the north of Galilee of Nazareth where people later believed that nothing good could possibly come from that place. That's where he came from. He came from that suburb or that country where you go, really? How could anything good come from there? He was not formally trained to study the Torah, and yet when he spoke, it said they, they, they couldn't believe the gracious words that came out of his mouth. He was an ordinary-looking man. He wasn't particularly attractive. There was no halo. There was no glow about him. And yet, he spoke with authority that he didn't receive from any person. He hadn't been at the feet of Gamaliel as Paul had. He, he had no credentials. If you would expect a, a doctor or a lawyer or someone who, was, who, was, who had known the law, well, Jesus wrote it, but he came from an unexpected place. 
There was nothing in his face that was attractive or notable. He was just one in a crowd. He'd be like someone if you're walking through the CBD and he walked past you and you say, another person. You wouldn't think anything different. Like it or not, we do place value on appearances, on age, or clothing, or education. Where you live. We notice those things. In the Bible, Moses, he's described as a beautiful child. He said he was a beautiful child, and so she kept him. Right? His mother kept him. Uh, David, he was called ruddy, with bright eyes, and good-looking. King Saul, what was he? It says, head and shoulders above all others in height in Israel. So he was a tall man. Absalom, it says, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. So he was praised for his beauty, head to foot. And look how God describes his servant. He says, as a root out of dry ground. Life springing from a most unexpected place. On the baseball grounds that I play at, there is area where it's all for turf, and there's area that's supposed to be totally free of turf. There was one ground, I think it was in Bogabilla. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Okay, well, yeah, that's where we went. And and the, the ground had been in a bit of disrepair. A lot of turf had started springing up in the area that's supposed to be dirt. And so they were out there quickly before the game trying to clean it up and they were just kind of cutting the weeds down and so when you have an area that is set apart to be just dirt and there's that grass growing out of it well it's like that doesn't belong there get it out and that was jesus nazareth son of a carpenter that's not a messiah can't possibly be you don't belong you must be demon possessed you you are a samaritan rejected. And so Jesus was rejected. He wasn't what people expected. He was refused. It says he was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. It's a proven fact that grieving has a physical effect on the body. If you are in grief, it has a physical effect where you can lose weight, you wear it on your face, Think about people who have uh, used alcohol or drugs for a long period of time, heavy use of those things. It can put a lot of miles in a short time on your body, and you, you can see it in your face. Now, the hard miles that Jesus endured were not from excess, but from grief. He had grief. In one interaction, when Jesus was just over 30 years old, See what's said in John 8, 56 and 57. He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? They didn't say, You look like you're 30, or you look like you're 40. They said, You're just under 50. (laughs) So his appearance was old for his age. Lines. And you might ask, well, if Jesus is filled with the Spirit, if he is my source of unspeakable joy and peace, why is he a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Let's turn to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 16 through 18, 
where we find a biblical answer for this question. So it's in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 16. It's just a little Selah. Let everyone get there. I'll read it to you. It says, I commune with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. King Solomon had everything as far as the, what the world could offer. He had um, a power, authority, a kingdom, gold, anything he wanted. He, he could order, you know, they didn't have the internet, but he's like, hey, let's bring in those peacocks and apes and, and uh, horses and get things going. I mean, he was building projects. You name it, he had explored it. And he says, let's check out wisdom, understanding and knowledge. And he says, with the more wisdom I have, the more grief I have. With increased knowledge comes increased sorrow. Think of Jesus, he has all wisdom, all knowledge, complete. Have you ever thought that you were on good terms with someone until you heard that they said something bad about you? Now, Jesus never had to wait for the grapevine because he knew it right away. He knew it explicitly, perfectly. If someone was playing a part, acting like his friend, inviting him over for dinner, not because they liked him, but because they were trying to find ways to accuse him. He knew what people said about him. He, re he knew when they refused the grace of God. He knew when they had perished so their bodies had died and their hearts were far from God and they were in eternal torment. He knew it. He didn't have any hope that, as we sometimes do, well, you know, something may have happened at the end. Well, he knew they had refused him and there was no hope for them. He knew it when a child was abused. He didn't worry um, or suspicious about what was going on because he knew what was happening. He knew that the religious leaders that had been committed God's word were leading people away from God and into hell. He knew that. He saw the hypocrisy. And he's offering love, truth, the wisdom of God, and everyone is rejecting it and conspiring against him. And he has to live with this every day, all the time. And yes, he had the joy of the Lord. He had put his confidence in God, but he was grieved because of what he knew and that people had rejected the truth of God and it was going to be for their destruction. It burdened him. And he would be praying. He'd cast that upon the Lord. But it was he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was intimately acquainted with it. You know how bad it feels to be left hanging I mean, just casually, you put out your hand and someone, you see that they saw your hand, but they ignore it. 
That doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to send a text message or an email and just be ignored. That doesn't feel good. Now that is just scratching the surface of the rejection that Jesus faced. It was like that all the time. He's giving his whole life to people and they just blew him off. They just ignored him. And they didn't live in light of his love. And they didn't live in light of his truth. He gave his entire life and people regarded him as nothing and many still do. And so it grieved him. He was grieved by the hardness of hearts. But check this out in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. We don't need to feel sorry about Jesus being loaded down because he's able to bear these things. He carried my sorrow. He carried my grief. He carried yours as well. All of them. To the full. When I am privy to the pain of others, it's often more than I can bear. And I just know of one thing. right? I hear of one situation and I'm like overwhelmed by it because I know there's nothing I can do. But Jesus is able to do everything. And that's what Job said. He says, God, I know you're able to do everything. And that's what he does. Jesus Christ, the righteous servant, he has carried our grief. He has carried our sorrow to Calvary. There is no grief too great, no sorrow so intense that Jesus hasn't carried for those who love him and who trust him. If you believe that Jesus has carried all of your sins to Calvary, and there is no sin too great, understand there is no grief or sorrow too great that he has not already carried with him. We can give that to him and commit it to him fully, even as he committed himself to the Father. Just a little example, how we can, what helps us in dealing with grief. Jacob loved one of his sons, Joseph, and gave him a coat of many colors and that put him at odds with all of his brothers who hated him because he was receiving preferential treatment. You know, while they're out in the field, uh, Joseph is back home. His dad's kind of, you know, taking him under his wing. And they just felt left out. And they conspired against Joseph and sold him into slavery, sold him into Egypt. And Joseph, over the passage of time, became second in command. After going to prison, after having a difficult time, God restores him and, and goes beyond restoring him. He promotes him in the kingdom. And there's this massive famine. So seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And Joseph's brothers end up coming to Egypt to get some food. Joseph recognizes his brothers, who don't recognize him at all. And he, he begins, he, he feeds them, he makes sure they have grain, but he begins to test them. And a point came where he revealed to them the truth. He said, everyone go out of the room. And he said, hey, I'm Joseph, is my father yet alive? And they're like, what? They could not believe that that was Joseph. Because they're thinking, this guy's got power, and we sold him into slavery, what's he going to do to us? So they're, they're concerned about themselves. But they came back to Jacob 
And Jacob, when he heard, because they had lied when they sold him the slavery, and they said, Dad, um, we found this coat. And they had dipped Joseph's coat in blood. And they said, Dad, we found this. Do you know who it belongs to? And he's like, oh my goodness, that's my son's. Surely he's been eaten by a wild beast. And I will go down to my grave mourning him. And, and it says they rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He says, no, I am going to grieve for the rest of my days. So now they come back with a different message. They say, hey, uh, Joseph's not actually dead. He's alive. And this is what they said in Genesis 45 through 20, 25 through 28. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So the, the testimony of Scripture is, yes, you have grief, you have sorrow, but Jesus Christ has died, and he has carried that with him. And his resurrection is proof that he has. So what did Jacob need to see to believe? Because at first he's like, nope, I'm not believing that. Now, I've been grieving all this time. Well, when he heard the testimony of the brothers, when he heard the things that Joseph said, and when he saw the things that had been supplied, those carts to bring him back, then he's like, it says his soul revived. And you know, God wants to revive you today. He wants, he wants you to listen to what he's saying in his word. He wants you to consider the testimony of the lives of people who have been redeemed and who've been brought out of depression and sorrow and misery and, and realize that he's given you an avenue to know God. Will you go and see him today? Like he's like, all right, let's go. It wasn't like, well, what do I have to lose? He said, no, my son is alive. And, and he rejoiced in that. Know that Jesus has carried your sorrows. He's carried your griefs. He's alive. He can revive you if you will believe and go to him. Those who condemned Jesus Christ to death, those who walked by and saw him bleeding and dying on the cross, it said they considered him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. There was a common belief, which persists to this day, that if you're having a hard time, if you're suffering, if you're having difficulties, then clearly you've done something wrong and God's punishing you for it. And so as they see him hanging there, they go, oh, well, it said they shook their heads. Ah, too bad. He was such a nice guy. Apparently, he was a fraud. <laughs> Apparently, God, God is now being just towards him in removing that liar from this earth. That's what people thought, that he was a liar because he claimed equality with God. And they said, this is blasphemy. And so Jesus, he's only doing the right thing. He's, he is who he is. He said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And there he is, rejected, betrayed. Jesus did claim equality with God. We can see it in John 5.18, John 19.7. You can look at those passages. Now God, and this is the thing, God did smite Jesus. God did afflict Jesus, but it was not for his sin. 
It was for the sin of the world that he put upon Jesus, that Jesus carried upon himself. God did it. But he didn't do it because Jesus was a fraud or he was unrighteous. He did it out of love for us so we could be made righteous through his. It says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. So we have physical, we have spiritual healing from the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus died for the sake of the nation Israel, but not for them alone, because the sins of all the world were placed upon him. All the Gospels emphasize how whenever someone had a problem, whether it was demon possession or an illness, it always says he healed them all. He healed whoever came to him. There was never a point when Jesus said, I'm not willing to heal you. He always said, I am willing, and he healed them. Now, it's not to say that every sickness or illness that we have will be uh, lifted off us in this life, but know that God is willing to heal. He is able to heal. Lepers were cleansed. People born blind. They could see again. The lame, they jumped to their feet. Even those who were physically dead, he brought back to life. And Jesus has done far more in just healing a body for a season, but he has saved our souls. He's given us new life, eternal life with him. The miracle of the new birth, the filling with the Holy Spirit, that's the life that's available to all who believe on him. So he's carried our transgressions. Even our illnesses he has carried. None of those need defeat us. None of those need weigh us down with sorrow because Jesus has carried it. And that's a cool thing to think about. If you're willing to commit your sins to Jesus, well, commit your pains to him. Commit your grief to him. Let him carry those because he already has. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Bible never says that people are basically good. In fact, it says people are completely wicked, right? We have all sinned. We've all turned out of the way. We've all gone our own direction. Romans 3, 10 through 12, it states, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So we've all sinned. We've all gone our own way. We all deserve death. Okay, a baby that's born... It is innocent, but it is not sinless because sin is passed on through people, that nature that we have. Jesus, of course, he was uh, conceived through the Holy Spirit. So the sin of Adam did not pass to him. And he was able to be pure before the Lord. And, and it's like we've all, we've all sinned and we have, it's like we went astray and we couldn't help it but we've also gone astray on purpose when we knew it was the wrong thing to do, right? So we've, we've gone our own way, but then we've also chosen to go our own way. God is the only one who makes 
the criteria of being good. He's the only one. And God laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus knew what he would accomplish when he went to Calvary. He had great joy in knowing that through his death, many would be saved. He committed himself to God who judges righteously. And he showed such self-control in not arguing or trying to defend himself. He did not threaten when people were accusing him. He said, God's going to vindicate me. And he didn't even need to tell people that. He had total confidence in God. If you could turn in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, since we are talking about God's righteous servant, this is a godly exhortation to servants. And if we are in Christ, as Jesus has served the Father, so we are to serve him. Now, I want to warn you, this biblical approach to authority is really different than the way the world sees things. We are to look at life through the lens that God has all authority. And the authority that he's placed over us, we will submit to. The world will see this and say, this is stupid. And God has actually told us that that's the opinion. Because what is why God's wisdom looks like foolishness to the world. But since we have been born again and we have his spirit within us, when we read this, we go, yeah, this is, this is the walk of a Christian. 1 Peter 2 verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to you, this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I don't know anyone who makes sacrifices to do the right thing, is punished for it, and is happy about it. I mean, come on. Well, we think it's pretty good of us when we take our own medicine. You know, you did the wrong thing. You patiently, well, you know, I did the wrong thing. I deserve to cop a bit. And so you cop it, and you deal with it, and you move on. But think about what Jesus endured. He didn't deserve any of that. And yet he patiently, quietly endured. It says that's what we're called to do. It says, to this you were called, as Christ suffered for doing good. When suffering comes, when we've done good, to endure, to not lose heart. Because grief can be an oppressive master. It is an oppressive master. We're not to be mastered by grief. We're to be mastered by Jesus Christ. He will take our grief. He is the master of it. 
See, I am no master of anything. Jesus, he is my Lord. He is the one that I have returned to. He's the one who will, will guide and lead you into all truth through his spirit. And he hasn't just given us an example of what to do, but he's given you the spirit so you can do it because it'll be him doing it in you. You're relying upon his strength now, not your own. I love that he's not just given us forgiveness of sins, but he's given us a new way to live, a new way to look at the world, a new way to show his love to other people. We were like those sheep going astray, but now through Christ we have returned to the overseer and good shepherd of our souls. And he's put us together in this flock, right? The flock of God, the church. And we get to travel together and to serve one another and to support each other, to remind each other of these things when we're uh, with cares and worries and griefs are heavy and we, we think we have to bear them. But realize Jesus has borne them for you. Since my sins have been killed off, I need to be living for righteousness now. During my last trip to Cambodia, I had a case of food poisoning, likely from tainted water. Um, no one else got sick like I did. So there was something special for me. There was a lot of good things I've learned from that. But I was given uh, antibiotics to kill off the, the bacteria in my system and just to give me a head start, let my body recover. And while I was there and the doctor was talking to me, he reminded me, you know, don't just drink water out of the tap. Make sure that you're drinking clean water. Okay, pure water, bottled water that's sealed. And and honestly, there were a couple bottles that had been refilled, and I just drank them. I'm like, well, I'll be all right. Well, I wasn't quite all right, was I? Now, medicine helped me recover from my illness, and Jesus is the one who's taken our sins upon himself. And it would have been very silly for me to have the antibiotics run their course for my body to be restored to health and then go back to the dirty water again, to be eating that the unclean food or going back to the same things that had made me sick in the first place. And that's what he's saying here. Those things that held, those things that were killing you because sin is deadly, don't go back to them. Now live for righteousness. Put aside the filthy water and drink what's clean the living water that I'm going to give you. Because Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin so that we can live unto righteousness. If we're still drinking the bad water, we can't expect to be doing the right thing because we're making a sinful choice. Right? It's going to have an effect in your life. The death of Christ on the cross, when you talk about the blood and the, the, the pain and the gore, it shows us how bad sin is. And it also shows us the depth of Christ's love for you, that he would endure that joyfully for your sake. That he would go through that because he loves you. He wants to be with you forever. He wants you to be with him. Isaiah 53 verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Pontius Pilate, he found no uh, fault in Jesus, but he released Barabbas to the people, 
and he also condemned Jesus to crucifixion. Jesus died without wife and descendants. He had no children. It seemed like he would be without a legacy in this world. How many people have died and are no longer remembered? Their names, their faces, their loves, their their lives are, are just gone for the most part. And I figure after a few generations, that that's probably all of us, where one or two people might remember, but we, we fade like a flower and are not remembered. Now, crucifixion was an inglorious death. It was reserved for slaves or the worst criminals. In fact, Romans were often exempted from crucifixion. By virtue of being a Roman citizen, you didn't have to worry about being crucified. But if you were a slave, if you were a foreigner, Jesus was a Jew, well then, you would be for you. Uh, He was executed, as we know, along with two thieves. It's likely all three of them would have been buried together. If they were buried, it would have been in a shallow grave. Or it was customary as well to just leave the bodies on the cross. But because it was in Jerusalem, and not only was the holy day coming up, but the Sabbath, they were going to bring the bodies down because there would just be a riot. So they broke the legs of the two who still lived to speed up the process. Now, all the Gospels mention an honorable and wealthy man. He was a follower of Jesus who was looking for the kingdom of God, Joseph of Arimathea. And he boldly went in and he asked for the body of Jesus. It was a bold move to identify with someone who had just been crucified. It's like, oh, you're with him, huh? You care about that guy? It wasn't a very good look socially. But he went in and he asked for that body and he had this this tomb carved out of the rock that had not been used, and he placed Jesus, treating his body with care. It said they they washed him, put the spices and the, the wrappings on him, and laid him in that tomb. He was worthy of remembrance. There were many women that also went and ministered unto him, and they had throughout his ministry. So you see that that scripture is fulfilled in Christ. He was at his death with the wicked, but the wealthy at his burial. Isaiah 53.10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The Bible says that God's not willing that any should perish, He wishes for all to come to repentance and be saved. He wants people that he loves to be with him forever. Now, this opportunity for God to have this relationship with man ended in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned. And so God created, he provided a way so man could be redeemed, so his sin could be forgiven, and he could live with God once again. Now, Revelation 13.8, it says, Jesus, the Lamb of God, had been slain from the foundation of the world. And this is interesting because it means that God knew before he even created man in the first place, created man out of the dust of the ground in his own image, breathed into him a living soul. When man was given the freedom to choose, he would go his own way. So before man was even created, it was as if Jesus had been slain. He knew what it was going to cost to make man. But he loved man, 
And so he created us, knowing what it would cost him. It wasn't like a, uh, I guess, like, well, plan B. You know, that didn't really work out. So we're going to have to create another way. No, he knew what would happen, and he was glad to go through with it. Sometimes we, we think, you know, if I had to go through it again, I wouldn't have even gone down that road because it was painful. But God was willing to because he loves you. He wants to be with you, and he wants you to be with him. He wants you to want to be with him. That's who he's looking for. So God's revealed his love through sending Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. He doesn't have wife or daughters or sons, but in dying he would be a seed sown that would spring forth into eternal life for all who believe. And so he sprinkled many nations, and here we are uh, today, many, many years later, uh, walking in the new life that God has given us. Jesus was God's righteous servant. It says he would justify many. That's providing forgiveness and also a full pardon. Edwin Orr told a story about how justification is more than just forgiveness. When we say God has justified us, he said during this trip in California, he was from Chicago. I think from, from Ireland originally. But he's in Chicago. He lived in Chicago, was traveling to California, and they had a stop sign, and he rolled through. He did what we call a California stop. He just kind of, the hood just, the bonnet just kind of, and then just kept going. Never stopped, and a cop saw him and pulled him over and and said, uh, what, you don't uh, stop for stop signs in, in Chicago? What's going on? Well, we stopped for him in California, driver's license or registration. So he has a little talk, and, and uh, after... A little bit of a rebuke. He says, well, I see that you're a guest in our fair state, and so I'm not going to write you a ticket today. So Edwin Orr says, hey, I was forgiven, but I was not justified because when I looked in my rearview mirror, he was watching me. He said, and when I came up to the next stop sign, I stopped, and I made sure he saw me stop. And then I continued on. So he had been forgiven, no penalty, but he had not been justified. That's a pardon. No remembrance of what had happened before. He was on probation. And see, when with God, you're not on probation. He's not waiting for you to do the next wrong thing. Know that he has forgiven you and he has justified you. So it's not just forgiveness, but he's placed the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon you and you have been pardoned for all of your past sins. They do not come into God's mind anymore because he's saying, I will remember their sin no more. He chooses to not remember them, which is very different than forgetting. Because if you forget something, you could remember. But he says, I will remember their sin no more. That's what God did when he justified you. When you repented and you trusted in him, that's what he did for you. And what a joy that we've not only been cleansed, but we've received a full pardon from God. No guilt of our previous sins, even if I sin today, it does not change my standing with God. I can still repent and be in his favor. Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, 
and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. God's righteous servant, Jesus, he humbled himself. God would exalt him above all. He said he'd give him a portion with the great. And we who have been born again, we are beneficiaries of these great rewards, gifts, a position with God, access into his presence. We were once captives of sin, now we've been redeemed. We've been given spiritual gifts, we have freedom. And Jesus, it says, he made intercession for the transgressors. How fortunate, how blessed we are that God would speak favorably on our behalf that he would look upon us with love and care for our good. A couple of verses. Hebrews 7.25, it says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we have access to Jesus at all times, and he lives to make intercession for us. So it's like he's dedicated, in one sense, to speaking good on our behalf to the Father. Pleading our case as our advocate, as it says in Romans 8, 31 through 34, it says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So God's the judge and God has forgiven. God has justified. So who can condemn us? Whose accusation is going to stick when God is the one who has justified? Jesus, he has died. He is also risen at the right hand of God, making intercession. So if you could turn our final passage, 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to look at that word propitiation, which means atonement, payment, He was able to pay the price for our sin in a currency we have no access to in ourselves. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus is righteous, and we ought then, therefore, to walk righteously. Our own righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags, but Jesus is an advocate for all who believe. He's he's on your side because you have aligned with him through faith. This word propitiation, it means that there has been a payment which has satisfied all of our offense before God, by which all guilt is done away. Completely gone. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loves you. 
And he did so. He proved it. He demonstrated it by sending Jesus. And Jesus again did it, demonstrated that in dying for us. So I put forth Isaiah's question to you. Who has believed our report? Have you received Jesus, number one? And number two, are you living like him? Like God's righteous servant, Jesus? Is that heart in you? Because the manner of our lives will answer that question. If we are being mastered by grief or sorrow or sin, or if Christ is our Lord and we're walking righteously. So all who love God and receive his Son, we obey him. That's how we show that we love God. God showed his love for you by sending Jesus to die on the cross. And we show our love to God in responding to that by walking the way that pleases him. And so what a joy that God has taken our grief, our sorrow, our sickness, our sin, all that brought death into our lives, all that brought distance between us and God. He's done away with it completely so that we can know God and we can lead others to him. I mean, what a privilege we have. Let's thank him. God, you are so great in what you've done for us. It's so beyond words, the payment that Jesus has made. And we, we remember the blood that he shed. We remember his tears that flowed down and even those drops of sweat-like blood that poured to the earth. Lord, we want to be your children. And so cause us to live in the way that pleases you, Lord. Cause us to be thankful and grateful. And if we are laboring, Lord, under grief and sin and sorrow, may we commit it to Jesus Christ, believing like Israel that there was life for him. Thank you, Lord, for your promises, for your word, for giving us this report today that we can read and remember that we have a Savior, we have an advocate. He has paid our price, so Lord, cause us to live righteously. Thank you again that you have drawn us to yourself, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have filled us with your Spirit, and I pray we'd walk in the fullness of the Spirit now and always, thanksgiving and praise coming from our hearts to your throne. Thank you, Jesus, for all you have done, and we praise you and glorify you in your holy name. Amen.